episode 16, Seeing Better Patient Outcomes with Google Glass. Today, I'm speaking with Kyle Samani from Pristine. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. This is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom, a niche managed market marketing agency. The first time that I encountered Google Glass was actually in a Banana Republic. In fact, in a Banana Republic, which happened to be located on the bottom floor of the Google building in Chelsea in uh, Manhattan. A hipster had on the Google Glass and she talked out a critical outfit decision with her very fashionable, that was clear, virtual friend. The conversation was very efficiently accomplished, I might add. Fast forward to today and to Google Glass's perhaps more far-reaching applications, healthcare. Today, I'm talking with Kyle Samani from Pristine. And Kyle talks about the ways that Google Glass can be used in home healthcare. He talks about how it's it's used in for paramedics and surgery for virtual rounds, so that surgeons can do virtual rounds. It's really a game changing way for a specialist to be in the room with the patient, no matter where the specialist geographically might be located. Kyle is the founder of Pristine and also kind of a content marketing whiz kid. But I'll let him tell you about that. Here's what he has to say. Welcome to the program, Kyle. Stacy, thanks for having me. Why don't you talk a little bit about uh, Pristine IO? When when did you start this operation? Sure. By the way, um, the name of the company is Pristine, not Pristine IO. Unfortunately, Pristine.com is taken, and it is one of the most ugly, horrific websites I have ever seen on the history of this planet. It pains me every time I go to it. So... My background before starting Pristine, I was leading design and development of an electronic medical record system, one called VersaSuite. They're based in Austin, which is my hometown. And I joined there when I was that company when I was about 20 after growing highly disillusioned with finance and investment banking. I was attending NYU Stern at the time to go into banking and realized just how evil and awful banking is. So I got into tech specifically health IT and electronic medical records. That's kind of a, a giant leap, you know, going from banking the whole way into healthcare IT. How, how did that happen? Yeah, I was very, I was very um, fortunate that I had good connections at this company. And I, I thought I knew, I thought I, I thought health IT was going to be a hot space. This was May of 2010. So the meaningful use regulations had been passed, but the programs hadn't really kicked into place yet. And I was very confident that, you know, health IT was going to be a hot space. And Electronic medical records were obviously the foundation for everything else that you could conceivably want to do in medicine in terms of digital data. And, and so I knew that was what I wanted to learn. So I jumped right into that, um, not knowing much, but, you know, with my general technology, recognizing that the EMR is clearly the foundation for everything else. So I joined there as an engineer. I've, by the way, been programming since I was a little kid. And I ended up spending three years there, one year in engineering, one year in technical sales, and one year as the product manager responsible for all of their clinical applications. So I was, I was in some total responsible for clinical documentation for most clinical workers, drug, drug and order entry, drug administration, lab, pharmacy and radiology systems, case management, discharge management, med rec, um, and all the kind of other core clinical functions that go into making a hospital work. 
basically you had the opportunity to perform almost every role that is necessary to start your own company. I, don't, I wouldn't know if I'd go that far. I knew nothing about finance uh, or invest, you know, fundraising. You know, Versus Suite was a great company. I learned a tremendous amount. They definitely were not the best run sales organization. And to be candid, I've never really seen an amazingly run sales organization because I've never been in one. So, you know, we're still learning a lot. Um, I think I was a good salesman. I like to think that I am kind of the micro level. But in terms of, you know, building the machine, that's definitely something that I lacked a lot of exposure to. You know, in terms of real world experience, I was also lacking there. I was only 23 when I left Versus Suite to start Pristine. Why did you do that? You know, like, why did the entrepreneurial bug bite you? The third year I was there, I was reporting directly to the CEO, and he and I just didn't get along very well. <laughs> and, <Know> uh, that. <laughs> and, and so I decided that I wanted to go do my own thing. I had no idea what I wanted to do. This is like latter part of 2012. I was frustrated and knew I wanted to do something, but didn't know what. And for a few months, I was contemplating it. I had some ideas for things I wanted to do in the health IT space, but Nothing that I was particularly passionate about. And then all of a sudden, in February of 2013, Google announces the Glass Explorer program. And pretty much from the moment they announced that, my I just get super excited and my eyes light up. And I'm just like, oh, my God, it's a hands-free computer for healthcare. Naturally, I was drawn to it. I also happen to like toys. And I've actually written some essays and stuff about human-computer interaction and how to think about how do you create that seamless border and that experience between how humans tell computers what to do. And naturally, glass and healthcare just makes sense at, at such a basic level. You saw that first press release or the, the Google announcement that glass was coming out and it was like, oh, you know, message from the heavens that this is what you need to, to do. Yep. And, and it hit me right there. By May, I had co you know, officially established the company with my co-founder, Patrick. Patrick is our CTO. And Patrick and I have actually been friends since high school computer science class. Patrick is a brilliant technical mind, and he started engineering and coding away, and I started fundraising, and we got very just dumb lucky that an anesthesiologist we met in June, you know, just literally 30 days later, uh, ended up giving us 100 grand to, to kick things off, and we kept raising money and kept hiring and growing from there. The two of you are obviously people of action because um, you decided what you were going to do and basically had it done within... What was it? A couple of months from idea to we we still had a lot more to figure out, but at, at the highest vision level, I guess you could say that. But that was there were a lot of details to be determined. Well, what I'm talking about is sometimes it takes people literally years from I have a great idea to let's file the paperwork to actually start this company and quit our jobs and do this thing. You know, maybe you can talk a little bit about what exactly Google Glass is, just in case anyone has been in the Himalayas for the past <laughs> three years and missed the whole scene. Sure. So the way I like to kind of describe Glass uh, is to provide some analogies. So your laptop is a computer on your desk. Your iPhone is a computer in your pocket. And now Glass is a computer on your face. And, and so that's just what Glass is. It's really nothing more or nothing less than any other computing devices. We're all pretty used to used to using these days. Um, it has a screen, it has an internet connection, it runs an operating system, it can run third-party applications, it has processor, RAM, battery, Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, all the same basic components that make up all the other computers we interact with are in glass. The way that they're organized, you know, looks different obviously, but conceptually it does the same thing. Where, where glass differs is really in terms of user experience. And you could argue that the same is true between an iPhone and a laptop where conceptually they all compute 
they get data in and they get data out, and that's really all they do at the end of the day. And Glass is no different in that regard. But the, the context and the form factor um, and the user experience really dictate what you use the device for and, and how you use it. Let me just admit something. I have never actually worn Google Glass as of yet. Shame on you. I know. Maybe you could explain. I mean, I know obviously what they look like. I have seen people walking around with them. So they look just like a pretty much a pair of glasses. But what do you see from the other side? One of the big misconceptions with the screen of, of glass is that it kind of obstructs your vision and it's in the way. And that's definitely false. The way Google designed Glass, the screen rests above your direct line of sight. So if you're sitting at the dinner table and someone's across from you, you can look that other person in the eye and there is no Google Glass screen or Twitter or Facebook, you know, obstructing your direct line of sight. Rather, the screen rests above your your line of sight. That screen, in terms of optics, emulates a 25-inch screen from eight feet away. So you can approximately, to give that an analogy, think about taking your computer monitor and just putting it on the other side of a conference table as a ballpark estimate. In terms of uh, doing that, that means that the text has to be pretty large. You can't fit a whole lot of text on that screen, right? Again, just think about the computer monitor on the far side of your desk. You know, size 12 fonts is not going to be readable. And so the glass screen is, is not meant to be data rich. It's not meant to be full of lots of stuff. It can display one image nicely. It actually is surprisingly clear and looks good, but you can't have eight images or a collage. You also can't have more than really about 30 to 40 words on the screen at a time. And and so you have to be very careful as a software developer designing for this thing that you don't put too much on the screen to make it unreadable for the user. How how do I, you know, click my mouse? Do I blink like I dream of genie or, or how does that work? One of Glass's biggest limitations is what I would call lack of user input models. So again, coming back to our analogy with laptops and iPhones, your laptop has a few amazing ways to tell it what to do, namely a keyboard where every button has a very explicit meaning um, and a mouse, which gives you pixel perfect accuracy on the screen, right? If you've got 720 by 1280 screen, which is pretty typical these days, there's about a million pixels or so on the screen and your mouse can individually distinguish and click on each of those million pixels in the computer knows how to distinguish that you know, on a per pixel basis. When you go to a touch screen, that breaks down a little bit. You know, you, you, there's what I like to jokingly call the fat finger problem. But even still, even with fat fingers, as it turns out, you know, Apple proved to the world that you can type um, on a pretty small screen, even if you only have, let's say, I don't know, 70 pixels worth of accuracy or 60 pixels, whatever that, that number is. Turns out that's still acceptable for navigating relatively interactive and data data dense user interfaces. But touchscreens are very powerful. Glass lacks both of the above. The primary mechanisms in which you tell Glass what to do are with voice. Glass does have some onboard voice recognition software. It is actually quite good at picking up commands to navigate through the operating system. And then the other kind of major way you can tell Glass what to do is with the trackpad on the side. The trackpad on the side emulates a up, down, left, right directional pad. So you can imagine navigating a user interface with your television remote, you know, where all you have is up, down, left, and right. User interfaces, given that that is an input method, need to be very simple because navigating, you know, an EMR with 18 different fields and things to click through and then lists and the number fields, that's not going to work on class. You need something that's very data consumption centric as opposed to input centric because on glass, there just aren't many ways to input data, especially if you're in a noisy room. Okay, you see this Google Glass that is new on the scene, and you're working in 
healthcare, you know, obviously for an EHR system, as you just described. How did you put the two and two together? At the basic level, um, hands-free is better than not hands-free. And if your hands are bloody or they're even just supposed to be clean so you don't infect your patients with God knows what, then a hands-free computer is better than a non-hands-free computer. What you started to think about is, wow, if we had a hands-free way to, if, if there was a, a, the possibility of doing things using a computer hands-free within healthcare, that's a game changer. The- Absolutely. And the kind of analogy I'd like to give to that is, again, the very simple one of the iPhone versus the laptop. In 2006, most people were like, yeah, why would I need a computer in my pocket? I have one at my desk. <laughs> and, and it turns out that that was very, very naive and myopic. And I suspect in about five or so years, we'll all look back and contemplate how we ever thought that smart glasses didn't make sense. So you you and Patrick sit down, sit down and obviously you realize that there that the possibilities are really endless, I, I suppose, or you know, relative to what what you can do with glass in in healthcare. What were some of the first ideas you thought of, or or the the, the ways that you originally conceived of using glass within the healthcare space. Right. So I was coming from EMR land. And so naturally, my inclination was to build an EMR for glass. <laughs> okay. I, I, knew, I, I knew lots about EMRs. I knew lots about the workflow challenges. And then about 10 days after starting that, we decided that was a absolutely terrible offer. Yeah, I was going to say, how'd that work out for you? <laughs> um, luckily, we, we determined that about 10 days later, we didn't want to do that anymore. Well, they say um, fast fail is the best way to go. So that sounds pretty fast, right? Yeah. We scrapped that and went on to, uh, on to what we're doing now. What kind of caused us to, to focus on video was having some, we had some pretty philosophical discussions around, well, let's kind of, again, let's think through analogies and let's learn from our um, predecessors in the computing era. If you think back to kind of the early days of desktop computing, it turns out there were a few really major applications that drove adoption of desktop computers back in the late 70s and through the 80s and into the 90s. And kind of in order, those were first spreadsheets. VisiCalc was really the first real desktop application that did anything um, and then had real value. And turns out it was enormously valuable for companies to be able to have spreadsheets to do financial modeling, you know, for cash flows. And that was that in and of itself was reason enough to invest almost any sum of money into a computer because modeling your cash flows and making intelligent decisions was way more valuable than the five or even ten thousand dollars you would spend on that computer at the time that was a piece of junk. Then kind of the next application was that became big was word processing, right? So being able to have spell check and delete things instead of having a typewriter, that was hugely valuable. And then kind of after that, then you start getting into the late 80s and early 90s, it kind of became desktop publishing with rich graphics. So now, you know, think newspaper design, magazine design, whatever, you know, collateral design, if you will. That then kind of, and then you started getting the internet, which got led into email, and then from email you kind of got into Google. So that was kind of the natural progression of the early applications for desktop computing. And all those kind of, if you think about them, they made sense in terms of the market's ability to adopt them, right? So if you went back to 1988 and told someone, sorry, 1978, here guys, there's this thing called Google. Please use it to search all the world's information. They would have been confused. Um, a, there wasn't much information to search. And be there like, well, what the hell is a computer? Why do I have it? So, you you know, you needed to have reasons to, to kind of build through that progression. Um, and if you think about smartphones, right, the, the killer app, if you will, for smartphones was voice and text. And then later on, you know, think about the early days of Blackberries and PDAs in the early 2000s. 
It was um, contacts and calendar and then email for some business executives. And then kind of as the iPhone rolled out, the next big killer app was really, you know, the mobile browser, Google Maps, and then the App Store. And let's just say Facebook is a kind of quintessential example of that. And so those were kind of like, that was the progression. And so the, the way we have to think about Glass is, again, what is the low-hanging fruit? What is the stuff that in 10 years we're going to look back on and say, obviously, that was the simple stuff? It's really easy to think about the actually complicated stuff and the stuff that's what I would broadly call dreamy and kind of computer techno awesomeness. Um, so things like having computer vision and you walk around and in the hospital, things just start popping up like, oh, you have this alert, this cue system of all the things you need to do. And, oh, you didn't wash your hands. And, oh, as you walk into this patient's room, it does facial recognition and verifies for you that this is, in fact, the patient. Why are you scanning a barcode on their wrist when the camera on the computer could just tell you that? These are all things that are obviously technically possible, but we kind of were thinking through, well, you know, are those going to be the the obvious low-hanging things? And we you know, really boiled down to, well, what's something that's simple that people can understand that's actually kind of a derivative of what people already do anyways, and, and that actually has pretty broad implications? And we determined that video was that answer. That makes a lot of sense because, you know, if you just read any book on how to how – to innovate the fastest or gain acceptance for an innovation the fastest, what you'll see over and over again is that iterative is far more, and at the end of the day, faster than wild differences. Yes. So uh, you went with, with video. Yep. And we started, you know, we thought through the different use cases. We recognized there were a lot of different use cases that created a lot of different value, both in terms of cost, quality, you know, patient experience, and ultimately efficiency and care design models. We thought that video through glass was a material game changer. And we also determined that it was something that we believe the market could easily adopt in terms of being ready to accept it. Let me ask you just one question about video. Do you mean watching video through glass or taking video through glass or both? Taking video through glass, both live and recorded video streaming. Okay, so I am a healthcare provider. I am running around with glass, I encounter a scene and I take a video of that scene with the intention of sending it to to somebody else at a different location. Is that kind of the... In a simple nutshell, that's it. Cool. Okay. What what am I taking video of and who am I sending it to? Kind of thinking again very broadly about this, the answer is anyone and anyone. Um, to be a bit more explicit... <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, to be a bit more explicit... It, it's le a less of an expert and a more of an expert. Medicine is really, really hyper-localized and very fragmented. There's like 30-some-odd medical disciplines. You've got different levels of kind of providers. You've got, you know, LVNs, RNs, NPs, MDs. You've got different kinds of technicians. And then you've got nursing homes, hospitals, physicians' offices, specialty offices, ambulances, the number of different LTACs, the number of different kinds of healthcare workers and the number of different specialties and the geographic distribution of these people, like this is a super highly fragmented thing. And so if you're somewhere in the healthcare system as a patient and you need some form of specialized care, and I don't mean specialized like neuro brain surgery, I mean like anything beyond primary care, the likelihood that the person who's standing in front of you who's supposed to be helping you, the likelihood that that person is the person you need is probably pretty low just given the structural nature of the problem of getting the right person to you right now. And so we thought that glass was a really compelling way to implement video. Um, we find we, you know, one of our internal theses is that video is too damn hard for most people to do. It, you have to either buy a $25,000 cart 
and invest in all of this capital infrastructure for, from Polycom or Cisco. And then the software is big and clunky. And there's this cart, or you have to use an iPhone, which requires using holding your hands. Um, and we believe all of these are substandard ways of doing video. And glass kind of just seems like the compelling, logical way to do it because it's a truly passive experience for the person wearing glass. So the person wearing glass can stream whatever they're seeing live and in first person, right? And they don't have to, to stop, obstruct themselves or limit themselves in any way. And so we thought that that would open up a lot of doors. And so to dive then specifically, we now are, for example, beaming neurologists into the back of ambulances through the eyes of paramedics and EMTs. In the case of ICUs, lots of ICUs, you know, surgeons do cases with patients. They go to the ICU afterwards. The surgeon the next day is at another hospital doing different cases or they're in a, a clinic in a different place. And it's hard for the surgeon to get back into the ICU to see the patient. And so now those guys will literally just ask the residents or the nurses who are working in the ICU to put on glass and the surgeon will go on virtual rounds with the resident or with the nurse through the eyes of whoever's there. Let me just make sure I understand from the recipient side so or, or kind of understand how this goes down. I'm wearing the glass. I press a button or something on the side of the glass. And basically anything I see is now being video recorded. Is that is that how it works? Yeah, that's correct. OK. And then that information can stream anywhere that I would like it to go. So then as you were talking about with these virtual rounds, there's a surgeon who's on the other side of the town or in a center of excellence someplace far, far away. And I, if, if I'm that, that surgeon, I'm sitting at my computer and I, and I click it on. And now or I can... iPhone or iPad. Oh, okay. That's cool. And now I can basically see everything that whoever the person wearing the glasses is seeing. Correct. And I can, can, is there communication that's possible? In other words, can I say, well, you know, um, move the hand to the left? There is two-way audio. I thought that the EMT example was really interesting. So if you're a, you know, a paramedic in an, in an ambulance and you're trying, obviously, to give someone the best care, but you're not a cardiologist, the, the EMT could communicate with the cardiologist back at the hospital, for example? Yeah, for, let's say, heart attack patients or for neurologists for stroke patients or trauma specialist, or ortho specialists, or whoever the specialist is. And then you were talking about surgeons making virtual rounds. Is there any other, you know, as you were calling it low-hanging fruit, was there any other areas that you thought would be easy? Phase one. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, med schools. So, if you're going to implement video in any form of kind of hands-on job, regardless of healthcare or not, if you're going to use video for education, first person is kind of the logical perspective because why is a not first-person perspective better than a first-person perspective if you're teaching people how to do things with their hands? And so we're doing a lot of work with video in med schools. We're now actually, we just literally 30 minutes ago got confirmation for our third med school that's going to move forward with our technology. One of them is already live and the other two are going live very shortly. They're doing all kinds of work. Again, think about virtual rounding, thinking about surgery. They're doing work with um, recording anatomy lab dissections and, and reviewing those. They're doing a lot of work by putting glass on patient actors and filming the, themselves through the eyes of the patient to work on communication skills. The, all the, a lot of the attendings and professors have glasses so that they can actually record patient encounters and then use those for kind of real-world demonstration in the med school. So it's not just here's a bunch of chemistry and science and a long list of diseases. It's here's a list of all this chemistry and science. And by the way, here's how that actually plays out in a patient that I saw two days ago really bringing that final sense of reality to what is otherwise pretty abstract science. Another thing that you had mentioned um, when we were talking earlier was home, home care. Yep. So we now have a couple of home health care clients as well. Home care is a really interesting challenge from a, uh, 
operational perspective, you've got staff that, you know, you as management in the central hospital have no idea what these people are doing because they're literally everywhere, um, all over the place. You have high turnover. Staff are generally pretty un- not super well educated and they're pretty underpaid. And so motivations to stick around are, are pretty low. So it's a pretty tough industry to, to, to manage from a, just a pure human capital and operational perspective. And so we now have folks where they're giving glass to their mobile, to the workers and they're using that as their really on the ground training tool so that while the staff are out at the patient's home, they actually have a way to call in for help to, to do things correctly. And then also as a quality control mechanism. They're also now doing work by beaming physicians out to the patient's home. One of the big things in home care is you know making sure the patient's home isn't designed, excuse me, is designed to help prevent silly accidents from happening that will lead to readmissions. So if grandma is 85 and has osteo, you know, osteoporosis, you want to make sure that the stairwell is designed correctly. You want to make sure that her pill bottles are organized correctly. You want to make sure that there's no bad plates and sharp edges and all of these little stupid things that are very easy to bump into or miss or whatever that lead to someone falling, which leads to a $50,000 hospital admission. And so a huge part of home health is getting, you know, having this home health staff who are there identifying these risks and helping mitigate them somehow in the patient's home. And so when a lot of our Home health clients, again, the, the home health staff typically aren't the most educated folks in the world. And so they're, they want the physicians to see the patient's home through the eyes of that person so they can judge things and really make, get a sense for, you know, do we need to move this around? How can we address this risk that can save a massively costly readmission? This might be a really naive question, but what exactly does Pristine do? You, do you simply hand over the glass and help them use it, you know, so it's more of a training exercise or do you, are you actually programming something on their behalf, on on your customer's behalf? That's a great question. Glass out of the box does include its own video streaming solution powered by Google called Google Hangouts. Google Hangouts is not HIPAA compliant, similar to Skype, similar to a lot of other consumer centric web services. So Pristine offers a HIPAA compliant video streaming solution that's optimized for glass in terms of HIPAA, but also in terms of raw performance. And in terms of user experience, there's a lot of things that Hangouts actually is pretty heavily uses the trackpad on Glass to make and receive calls. And, you know, we determined that that was unacceptable for our use cases. We have lots of surgeons and paramedics. These people shouldn't be using their hands. And so we had to redesign the user experience around that fact. So that's kind of one major component of what we do. The second major component then, but I can broadly call that kind of HIPAA compliance and user experience. The other major component that we deal with today is what I call enterprise packaging. So if you're a hospital and you're going to deploy glasses to whether it's 10 or 10,000 employees, you don't want them calling like Johnny off of, you know, Johnny, who's their brother, who works at the car mechanic shop or who works as a lawyer. It doesn't really matter what Johnny does, right? You want a, what I call closed bubble or closed network where the only people who can communicate through the glasses are hospital staff who have hospital credentials. And so we provide a, a closed, secure network, right, where the enterprise can manage that. And then all of the associated kind of bells and whistles around that. So think audit records and management tools. We capture a lot of diagnostic data about the Wi-Fi. Obviously, all this is very Wi-Fi heavy. And so we need to, you know, if Wi-Fi is not working, we capture a lot of diagnostic data around that. We localize it to the access point. We do things like um, active directory integration and other things that are, again, all kind of feed into a more broadly called the enterprise packaging so that enterprises can quickly pick this up and adopt it. And so Pristine provides all of that in a soup to nuts turnkey solution 
So we literally have clients now that sign a contract and they go live days later because we automate everything in the background. They literally get a box in the mail that has a glass in it. We even pre-configure that glass to their Wi-Fi if they, if they tell us the Wi-Fi credentials and the glass literally works out of the box. No additional setup or configuration required. Nice. You were talking about enterprise solutions and, and, and all this configuration. Does every person or every employee need their own glass or, or how does that work? It depends on the user model. So some of our clients are uh, using shared glasses. Some of them, it's more individual to that person. It just depends. There's no rule and it just depends on the organization and, and what the use case is. If you're in home health, it's pretty much one glass per person. If you're in an ambulance, it's pretty much one glass per truck. If you're in surgery, it's you know one glass per operating room. If, say, I was in home health, for example, it's not like Sheila gets her own glasses. It would be more that there's a certain number so that everyone who is working that day gets one. Or does every individual actually get their own pair? Again, that depends largely on the client. It, you're right that it, it, they will... They try and manage hardware to move it around between people effectively. Obviously, there's costs associated with every hardware unit. And so our clients, it is in their interest to, to minimize the amount of hardware they need, even the staff they have and their use models. But that just depends on a client-by-client basis. Do you guys have any – I mean, it seems fairly obvious that if you have such a, a seamless communication stream enabling someone with a lot of experience to to be in many places at, at the same time, that patient outcomes would be favorably uh, affected. Is there any – you know, quantitative data around this or, or is this is it too early in the process for such studies to have been done? So we do have some studies. I think our first one will be published next month by one of our clients. We have about six clients right now who are in the middle of IRBs who will be publishing data in the coming months. But you'll start to see some pretty large ends showing some pretty statistically significant improvements in efficiency as well as quality. Yeah, I can really see how that would make sense, given that, for example, uh, you know, surgeons who perform one kind of surgery repeatedly have remarkably better outcomes than, you know, surgeons who do one every now and then, for example. So this would seem to be, seem to enable experience to be distributed or taken advantage of in, a, in, in kind of a very broad way. That's correct. How does reimbursement work? You know, that's one thing that providers always are, for very obvious reasons, concerned about. You know, in other words, if I'm a surgeon doing virtual rounds, you know, how, how do I, do I, can I get paid as if I'm there or, or how does that work? Yeah. So again, that, that, this question largely varies on use case. I'll address a couple of them for you. So in the home health model, there's no additional reimbursement. Our clients who are doing that today are, are fully at risk for those patients. So it's, this is, in their best interest if they can improve outcomes to do so. I mean, if they save one fall that's going to cost 50 grand with a broken hip and the ensuing surgery, then that's going to pay for the system for a long time because the system is by no means expensive. Thinking about um, another use case, let's say the surgeon following up with his patients in the ICU, a lot of surgery centers these days are moving towards bundled payments. Even for those that aren't moving to bundled payments, surgeons typically aren't comped by the hospital for going on rounds the surgeon is expected to go on rounds because it's you have to take care of your patient and you need to get them discharged to get them to follow up. But the surgeon actually has no economic incentive to come to the hospital to go on rounds. They simply need to see the patient to either get them into more rehab or get them discharged to come back to clinic so they can wrap up the case. So that one is actually, again, remarkably easy in terms of reimbursement. 
Where things get a little trickier is with, for example, neurologists and the doc of ambulances. Neurologists do get paid to see patients with strokes. And on that one, you know, we have to work with them on a kind of a state-by-state basis to get that worked out. Luckily, for telestroke is already a somewhat common thing in the world today. So it's, it's less challenging than it would have been even three or four years ago to get this done. But uh, there are definitely still real challenges around figuring out the new billing policies and procedures and, you know, determining who gets what piece of the pie that we have to come help our clients through. When do people typically call you? In other words, so say I am a potential, you know, prospective customer. I'm a hospital administrator or a home health administrator and I'm sitting around at my desk. When do I pick up the phone and realize that I should be calling Pristine? You know, what happens? Do I see a press release and I start thinking, you know, does it start from Google Glass, in other words, or is there a certain problem that I might be having that people immediately connect the dots to Glass? I'd actually say it's more of the latter, surprisingly. Glass, you know, we're very fortunate that Glass has quite a bit of publicity thanks to Google and all of the work they're doing. And a lot of healthcare providers, you know, they, they feel like they've been enslaved by the EMRs and by the desktop computers. And, you know, I think many of them look at Glass as a very liberating tool. It's so obvious to a surprisingly large number of clinicians, both nurses, residents, physicians, surgeons, and all the, really the full spectrum, that a hands-free computer is obviously better than not. And so they are like, well, gosh, if only I could do video through that thing and I could have Jan, Joe or Jane or Janet or Bob you know, show me what they're seeing, or conversely, if only I could show Dr. Smith what I'm seeing, depending on which end of the line you're thinking about. And so those folks kind of independently come to that conclusion and they're like, well, where's, where's a vendor that's doing this? I need something with HIPAA, obviously. And they start Googling and they find us you know, seconds or minutes later. And then we hear from them um, through our website we probably get right now three or four inbound leads per day, maybe more, and that's that's accelerating. And then they kind of explain to you what their vision is, literally and figuratively, and then you help them figure out how they might actualize that that vision. Yep. So most of your solutions are, are custom at this point. Then it's not like you've you um, have like you know kind of a box. This is our paramedic kit. So right now we're not doing any custom development. We do obviously work with our clients in terms of kind of change process and change management. But the software everyone's getting is fundamentally the same. There is some configurability built into the software in terms of users and and those things. But it's meant to be a pretty out of the box package in terms of software and functionality. Um, where things vary is workflow. And so, you know, we are building up a lot of that expertise in-house and then helping our clients kind of adopt it as we scale the business. What are the the, the hardest parts about launching and, and running a startup? You know, you've been at it for, for a, a while now. How many years? Um, 16 months. 16 months. So you've been at it for, for a year and a half, approximately. You, you know, what are, what are the things that you didn't anticipate? The things we didn't anticipate, I will say I was definitely very naive about how hard it is to raise funding. I had been reading TechCrunch for five or six years, and I was like, well, gosh, it's so easy to raise money. Everyone does it all the time. VCs can't find enough 24-year-olds to go give millions of dollars to. <laughs> <laughs> um, turns out that that's a lot harder than I ever thought. So that, and then specifically in the healthcare space, getting signing clients, hospitals are, and I, I mean this in the kindest possible way, not good white-collar professionals. They don't return phone calls. They miss meetings. They, they're they so used to dealing with large multi-billion dollar companies 
that it doesn't occur to them that you have quit your job and you actually are likely to fail and you have all these investors and they will ask you to fly out and spend you know a thousand or fifteen hundred dollars coming to visit them because they were curious and if you're a multi-billion dollar device company that doesn't really matter all of that's already built into the pricing models and that expectation is already there but when you're a startup and it's like well i only have fifty thousand dollars in the bank gosh fifteen hundred dollars that's geez that's three to four percent of my cash that i have left <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe you should tell them that they need to go get Google Glass so you can have kind of a virtual meeting. <laughs> yeah, and and so it's it's just there. It, it's it's a real challenge because they're used. Healthcare is not meant to work with startups. I mean, there's a lot of structural problems with them working with startups, both at the basic um, white collar professionalism level, and then in terms of just buying cycles and product adoption level. Yeah. And that's something that almost every entrepreneur that I have spoken with in the healthcare space, and I, you know, I've had a business for 20 years and I can't say that it's something that we have overcome. It's just that the buy cycle is so long and, and requires so many, there's just so many hoops to it that I can really see if you are a startup, it's this quarter or bust that that could be very difficult to to manage, especially if they're also, you know, the first question is, well, who else is doing this? You know, I need a proven, I need to go into my board with a proven results. That kind of makes any extremely innovative service sell somewhat interesting. It is a real challenge. No one wants to be first. Yep. You just got to hope no one wants to be last and find some people uh, who, are, who are willing to be first-ish. So you have, Kyle, so many extracurricular activities going on that I found it difficult to keep track of them. You are you writing blogs. You just were admitted into another organization. You want to rough that out a little bit? Everything I do ultimately, I think, is kind of thematically aligned under the pristine umbrella. I'm a pretty busy guy. I do write, do a lot of writing. And writing is definitely one of my passions. I'm, if you can't already tell, a pretty intellectually driven person. And writing, I find, is a very compelling and useful creative outlet for that. Writing helps me make sense of my thoughts. And it also, it turns out, is a absolutely spectacularly phenomenal ROI in terms of time and, and value to the business. I started blogging in January of last year uh, and turns out blogging has generated, it helped us generate about $250,000 in capital investment in terms of folks who emailed me off the internet at some point and said, hey Kyle, I like your writing, what's this Google Glass thing you're doing? And then I kind of walked them through that process and then they wrote us a big fat check. The writing has also led to finding several clients and has also led to a number of speaking opportunities, which have led to finding more clients. If I were to ballpark the ROI I've generated of blogging, I would venture to guess it's somewhere on the order of $1,500 to $2,000 per hour. Wow. Right? But like you can't, that's all delayed and it's all, you can't know that in advance, but it's just something that I love doing and I don't write for keywords, optimization, or any of that garbage. I just write, you know, what I like to write and, you know, I hope that it's good and um, sensible and people seem to generally like it and that tends to create v value. And where are your blogs online? Where can people find them? So all of my blogging is consolidated at kylesamani.com, which is really easy. I write for a number of health IT blogs, the largest of which is emrandhipaa.com. I'm friends with John Lynn who runs it and I write their op-eds every now and again. I also have stuff syndicated to other places too. I, I do. Uh, I just got, I guess, admitted to, I think, as you mentioned, the YEC or the Young Entrepreneur Council. 
I got an invitation, I don't know, three weeks ago maybe, and it looked interesting, and so I joined that. I do a lot of, I get invited to speak now to places, largely due to my blogging. I get, it's very convenient to be able to be asked to come and speak places about Google Glass and healthcare, and, you know, people want to make sure that I'm kind of a subject matter expert, and, you know, they want to see that you can write and speak, and so having that kind of online base of content helps people give you confidence as a as helps give them confidence in a young CEO that you can do that stuff on a public setting. And so that all kind of builds and snowballs. And I've been very fortunate that a lot of good things have happened out of really dumb luck. I mean, you could say I've created the luck, which I think is accurate, but it still is luck in the sense that I couldn't have known it would happen. <laughs> yeah, good things are happening and we're growing and signing deals and hiring and raising money and it's all coming together. Yeah, it very much sounds like it. You you are very press, prescient in, in a number of different ways. So what, what what cool things you got coming up? We, we have raised our Series A round of funding, which is exciting. I'm unfortunately not yet at liberty to disclose who's in the round, but it's about a 5.3 or $5.4 million round. So it's a pretty good size. Congratulations. Thank you. It's been by far the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. So we are finalizing that right now and, and hiring as far as kind of takeaways for the audience, uh, there's a lot of compelling ways to use glass in healthcare settings. And if you just think that they're you know, intriguing, I'd recommend you, you reach out. I think we can open up your eyes to many more things than you can originally think of. And that it's probably in most providers' best interest to think ahead of the curve rather than behind the curve. What's nice is our technology is surprisingly not that expensive. And it's actually pretty quick and easy to adopt. And so I encourage folks to you know, get out there, explore, try it, and hopefully give us an e- email or ring. You can email me anytime, just kyle at pristine.io. Or if you want to go to our website, we have a contact form on our website. Just drop us a line in there and we'll get back to you usually within one or two hours. Excellent. And I will also make sure that links to all of the Kyle's blog, as well as the the Pristine website at Pristine.io, all those links are on the Relentless Health Value website as well. Thank you so much for being on the program today, Kyle. I am personally intrigued and I certainly learned a lot. Hey, Stacey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Let me know if I can help in any other way. And, and audience, thank you guys for listening in. If you point your browser to relentlesshealthvalue.com slash 16, you will find links to everything that Kyle mentioned, his blog, Pristine's website, etc. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. Once again, my name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Franklin HealthCom. Did you know that you do not have to remember to download the latest Relentless Health Value podcast each week? You can subscribe. If you subscribe, then the episode will be automatically delivered to you in one of two ways. The first way is via iTunes. If you go to RelentlessHealthValue.com and you look over in the right-hand sidebar, you will see a gigantic orange dot. If you click on that dot, you will be taken over to iTunes. And if you hit subscribe there, then every week in your iTunes library, the podcast will automatically download. If you use the podcast app, it will be extra convenient. The other way to subscribe is by looking right underneath that large orange dot to a little form there that says, get the podcast delivered to your email. If you click on that button and type in your email address, then once a week you will get an email with a link to the podcast. It is very easy to subscribe. 
I'm so glad that you listened this week. Please interact with us on Twitter. We are at Relentless Health on Twitter, and that would be Relentless with only one S. So Relentless with one S, health. Please definitely feel free to interact with us, leave a comment, ask a question. We'd love to hear from you. And I very much hope that you'll tune in next week.